and welcome to the Theology Meets Reality podcast, the podcast for people who seek to follow Christ in the midst of the messiness of life and parenting. We are Lisa and Greg Casimir, and we are not afraid to deviate from the norm of culture, even Christian culture, to make sure that we are applying what we believe about God to how we live. Welcome to episode 15. This is the final episode of our three-part series on how we got the Bible. Today, we are talking about English Bible translations. Why are there so many different translations? Are they all reliable? What accounts for their differences? Which one should I choose? We will discuss all of these questions and more. Sounds like an exciting episode. I hope I got everyone riled up for it. Answering all the questions that we want to know. Um, Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Hi, Greg. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, We are going to start off um, talking about a random quote that's not so random, but we're going to discuss a quote and then we'll dig into all the stuff about our English Bible translations. So my quote today is from John Stott and it goes like this. The issue is whether scripture will inform society or whether society will inform scripture. What year was this from? <laughs> That's actually a really good question. I kind of thought the same thing as I was reading it. Uh, it was in a book that I read a while ago, and um, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Hmm. But I mean, that's always been true. Like, it's like, oh, that's very true today. But like, that was true yeah. a long it's, time ago. It's true all the time. Yeah. That's kind of the joke. It's like, you know, nothing new under the sun kind of thing. Yeah, so... You you agree with the quote? You like the quote? Yeah, yeah. It's something that you probably need to think about, like every single day. Like, with you know, what's going to inform what? Yeah, and it relates to our podcast because, um, because obviously you don't want to just like let culture infringe on how you see scripture. But then a lot of times we can be so catechized by culture that we don't even realize we're reading scripture through that lens. Yeah. Um, so we need to be careful with that too. Like the more subtle culture informing scripture instead of scripture informing culture. And I, um, I think one of the ways we can combat that is just like how, how much time is our mind spending with scripture, hearing it, reading it, reciting it, studying it compared to like other voices yeah hopefully it's not uh horribly like one-sided on the side of culture but you know there's always an opportunity to read the bible more yeah more time in prayer yeah i mean like we can kind of get off topic but i think our expectations are not even necessarily like biblically informed as far as how much as far as how much time we should spend in scripture because we're kind of like oh like we should read the bible like every day we'd probably say if we're doing that it's like really really good even though i think there's a good percentage of christians who don't read it every day um but yeah. then and then also like memorizing what you're actually reading which is something i need to do more of right well what i was going to say is that scripture actually says that we're supposed to meditate it on meditate on it day and night so it's like a constant thinking about scripture. 
Yeah, I've got a long ways to go. Yeah, I mean, we, we all do, <laughs> myself included. That's why I'm like, I think if we think we're like doing great with it, then maybe we should double check. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Are we comparing ourselves to like the person next door or are we comparing ourselves to like God's standard? Or, yeah. 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 Oh, that took a harsh turn. <laughs> <laughs> Hope everybody has a good time <laughs> we'll reading the see Bible how more. And this more. goes tonight. Well, I mean, this all fits together. It's like one of the really amazing things that we have. And here's Miss my super segue is we have a complete English Bible. We don't just have one. We have a bunch of English translations. The complete Bible. If you're listening to this, you understand English, and so you like you have this ability to read all these scriptures and not every culture has scripture in their language or the entire Bible in their language. So it's such a privilege that I think we don't even necessarily recognize. Cause like you could just go by, you can go to a store that's not far away and look at 30 different Bibles, like study Bibles and this version and like chronological Bibles and like the abundance of it. Sometimes we don't realize the privilege. Like, I mean, there were people like smuggling them in. I mean, this is true today, but like we just read yeah, something yeah, about, yeah brother Andrew, like smuggling Bibles into communist countries, like the preciousness of God's word. Like, do we lose that because it's like easy for us to access? Yeah. It's like so readily available. It just sits on the shelf like another book. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows what I'm going to say tonight? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Here we go. Let's find out together. So this is like the end of our three part series. Like we talked about. So the first one, if you missed it, that one was really interesting. It was about um, like if we have the original manuscripts, like how did we get scripture from when it was first written to be able to be maintained until the point when it all came together. Second yeah. week was called, it was called original manuscripts. I think second week was on the canon. Well, how did we choose what books went in the Bible and what books didn't? Um, and then, so this third week is focusing on like our English Bible. We have so many English translations. We kind of talked about this what do we do with it all? And where do they all come from and why are some of them different? Um, and the intention of thinking of this through is not really to pick like a favorite translation. It's not to divide God's word or like talk bad about certain translations. But the point is to understand how the English translations were translated and then learn to navigate them better because we do have such access to them. So I think it's important to start with second Timothy three sixteen. all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there's four key points that I kind of want to talk about to encompass when we're talking about understanding our English Bible. And the first one is that the English Bible alone is completely sufficient for relationship with God and an understanding of his word. I feel like sometimes there are people or places that kind of imply that if you don't know the original languages, you're like really missing out. I don't think people necessarily intend to do that, but sometimes I'll hear pastors be like, well, yeah, it says this in your English Bible, but if you look at the Greek, it really says this. And it's like a lot different. It's like, it's kind of like, well, if they know Greek, which they don't necessarily do just because they can pull out a Greek word, yeah, but like, that you're that you're missing something, but I just want to re- reiterate that that's not true. Um, the Holy Spirit can speak through your English Bible, and you're not missing anything. Like yeah, like yeah, there's not there's not substance. some 
there's not some like higher understanding if you know greek and hebrew that you're missing out on like you can have a full understanding of god's word with the english translations yeah um yeah we'll come we'll come back to that thought but yeah i mean like it's completely sufficient does that make sense yeah yeah okay cool key point number two that having many english translations is not a problem but a blessing I've heard people express it as a problem, like saying these these can't be right because there's so many, they contradict each other, there's differences. And that's not true. You don't get me started on the contradiction part. <laughs> um, number three, we are not to put English translations against one another in a divisive way. That's not helpful. Yeah, because it's, it's all, it's God's word and it has been carefully translated and there are you know there there may be different like phrases or syntax or uh like word choices in the translation but the god's word is still true in it yes um yeah i skipped a bunch of scriptures that will um Mm -hmm that kind of back up what I was talking about. Basically, like, I mean, we know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can speak to us and reveals his word to us. And um, that the church as a whole and as individuals has prospered using the English or other like common language translations. And then I was going to mention, um, like the whole reason that the Bible was translated into English is so that the common people could read it. And there's a really interesting book about that it's called God's bestseller and it talks about William Tyndale and how he translated the new Testament in English. It was like, if you're into like church history or kind of like just really unique history, there was a lot of like, um, I don't know, just kind of like fun, interesting stuff of like people writing against other people and like threats and trying to capture different people and stuff like that. Now Tyndale translated it from Latin. Tyndale's Bible did come directly from the Hebrew and Greek oh, okay. texts. Okay. I was wrong. So, anyway, but that's so that we could read it. And, um, so we, we were on point, oh yeah, so on point two, when we had talk about many English translations not being a problem, but a blessing, um, there are advantages to having multiple translations. Like they can allow us to view different readings and for the Holy Spirit to speak to to us through different words with the same capital W word. Like it's still God's word, even though it may be a different word chosen for a translation. Also, the differences can cause us to pause and study. And that's always a good thing when we're stopping to think about the words. I've done that numerous times where yeah. uh, if something's a little difficult to read like it just doesn't flow very well in my brain for whatever reason um i'll look it up in a different uh bible or you know just change the translation on on a bible website and um that really helps to uh illuminate what is being said and like just make it easier to to follow and then you know, you move on from there. And some Bibles 
do a great job of having footnotes of the different discrepancies or translations of a single of a particular word Mm -hmm. yeah and i think there are benefits to study like each individual word and tense and word placement stuff like that like really paying attention to the each part right and when you know greek and hebrew that's i think that's one of the huge benefits of learning the original languages is that you have to pay attention to like these things that you would easily pass over in English. You have to go really slow and figure out, well, what tense is this and what word is this and stuff like that. Yeah. And if, but of course, when you memorize scripture, same thing, like if you're trying to memorize something word for word, then you have to like think about each word and why it was in that order and why they said this word when you feel like saying the other word, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, And just for people listening, I, took four years of Greek and my Greek is still pretty good because I've kept up with it a little bit. It's not at all like the way it was, but it's still pretty good. And I took two years of Hebrew and it was really good, but honestly, I don't remember a lot of Hebrew, sadly. One day when I have more free time, I want to take it up again. Mm -hmm. But I do kind of have that, that privilege, that benefit of like um, having been able to study some books in the original languages and I would say if you ever have the opportunity to do so, like totally take advantage of it. But um, there's nothing that we can't kind of do similarly using our English Bibles too. And then I don't think we should be a- afraid to compare the differences because the differences aren't a flaw that God made, but it's a difference in either our understanding or our interpretation. And then a really key point is we need to know when the translation differences actually matter. Sometimes they don't matter, and sometimes they do. And with the wrong understanding of the word, of course, our interpretation and our application, which come out of our reading, will be off. So it's important to note when the differences do matter. So um, let me give you some examples. So when you're translating something from one language to another, like, not necessarily the Bible, the translator always has some sort of intention and interpretation needed in each step for the, of the process. So, I mean, you, if you think back to even like if you are translating or writing something in like a high school, I don't know, Spanish class or something, you're translating something, right? When you take one sentence or paragraph and you rewrite it in English or rewrite it in Spanish, like you're translating it. And not everybody in your class is going to have the exact same thing because there's interpretation and intentions that come out of it. So word for word, like a lot of people want to have a word for word translation. We'll translate this exact word and then this exact word and this exact word. So you could kind of try to do that. But if you think about it, like our dictionary has a whole paragraph to explain what one word means. So, Sometimes you can't exactly translate one word for another word because, I mean. Sometimes it's a concept and not really a word. There's such a nuance to, it's hard to do a really word for word translation. Plus the cultures are significantly different. And there was like this implicit understanding of a culture long ago. So do you try to like put that in the translation or you just keep the old word even though you think nobody would really like understand it? Um. Then there's things like tenses and aspect and mode that don't correspond, like language to language. So like 
for example, English doesn't separate single and plural second person, right? The idea of like you and y'all. I mean, when, like some people say y'all, but like no Bible that I've seen says y'all. <laughs> but like in the Greek, it'll be clear that they're speaking to more than one you. So how do you write that in the English Bible? Right, right. Um, there's a bunch of little things like this. Um, and then, of course, some words mean more than one thing. Like I'm learning um, and teaching Latin to my kids and a word will say um, like patria means fatherland and country. It means both of those things. So if I wanted to translate patria, which would I put? I mean, either one, like on a quiz, either one is right. So right, but how do a, I know? Yeah. yeah. In a sentence, the context would determine. But how would I even know? Like they're both very similar. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would really be, there'd be a lot of context you'd have to take into consideration if it's, if someone's just talking about countries or if they're talking about perhaps where like their family came from, then that would be more of a fatherland type thing. Yeah. I mean, the point of this discussion is just kind of to show the idea that, well, you should just translate it word for word. Well, it's not, quite that simple like it's yeah that doesn't work as well as you might think it might work and then there's things like i mean so english sentence structure is different than greek for example so english we always say the subject first in greek they usually put like an important word at the beginning but you can't like it wouldn't make sense in english to write it that way so you have to move things around and yeah it's just that's just translation it's not people trying to manipulate or do things sneaky it's just the the nature of different languages right okay um and so yeah of course there are benefits to like looking at it in the original languages but we've had lots of really great translators translated to many different english bibles so um so we're going to talk about some different translation differences because we were saying some things matter and some things don't so let me give you some examples of things that are different in different bibles um some of them are a disparity from the original language it's in that maybe people didn't understand what the word was or there were multiple choices for what we could translate the original word and so it's just the translator's best idea of what the original word was so for example, if you look at um, Ephesians 2.20, it talks about um, our faith having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A lot of English translations say cornerstone. So like the NIV, the NASB, etc. They say Christ is a cornerstone. It makes me think of that song. Whoever sings that song I'm thinks that Christ is a cornerstone. I don't know. Oh, the way it was like cornerstone. Yes. Yeah, okay. You're going to sing it for us? Nope. Anyway, they apparently think that it means cornerstone. Um, but um, the NAB, the New American Bible, says it's the capstone. Christ is the capstone. Um, translating the same word just differently. Um. And then the BBE says the keystone, like a keystone is one of those stones, like at the top of a bridge that holds everything together. Yeah. And so the, the differences for that word are just people's understanding of 
the Greek word. So you can see they're all very similar. And honestly, they mean very similar things. But like a cornerstone you would build on top of, whereas a keystone would be at the top. Capstone would be at the top. Right, but the 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 understanding of those stones is still that they are a uh, important stone that uh, contributes to like maintaining the structure. That it is the cornerstone; it's a, the the solid foundation upon which you continue to build, and the capstone or the keystone. They're the stone that in like an archway, uh, you put it in the top and it's what actually keeps the rest of the stones in place and prevents it from falling apart. Mm-hmm. So the, the general idea in both cases is the same, that Christ is the one that uh, maintains the structure of his church. Yeah. So I don't think you're going to be like theologically mis... What's it called? Misled. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to show like why... There's a difference in words there as an example of a difference. Another one is a cultural nuance. So if we go to Proverbs 31 verse nine, the NIV says, speak up and judge fairly. Whereas the NASB and the ESV and the King James say, open your mouth or open thy mouth for the King James, open your mouth, judge righteously. NRSV says, speak out and judge righteously. So if you want to be really literal with what the Hebrew says, it's open your mouth. But is the point of the proverb to open your mouth or is the point to mm-hmm. say something? Yeah. It's uh, not like just open wide, you know, like just... Right, we're you, obeying by opening. <laughs> right, you just you just gape your mouth open and that's what it's saying? No. Right, so it just kind of depends on if you want to describe that cultural nuance so that people today would understand that you're supposed to say something or do you want to keep it exactly to the word and not change it? And that was the translator's different opinion. So some say speak up, some say open your mouth. Again, not something that's going to really throw anybody off or be a big issue. I'm just trying to show why it's different. Okay. Some Bibles have gender differences. So I'm sure you've noticed this. Sometimes it'll say my brothers, my brethren, like everything will be brothers or men or whatever. And then sometimes it'll say brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. So um, like James 1 verse 2 is an example of this, but there's many. And this kind of just goes also with the translator's idea of how they want to translate things. So Sometimes when in the Greek it says my brothers, it means everybody. So do you want to say my brothers or do you want to explain that it's brothers and sisters? Does that make sense? So some people would say, no, we need to stick with exactly the word that there was there. And some people would say, we need to explain that it's not just men that's included here. It's women. Right. And I will say like the translators are not adding women in where they're not meant to be. Um, they're just explaining what is there. Yeah, they're they're flesh they're like fleshing out the nuance of the Greek term that it you know, it, it includes yeah. it is more than just brothers or it is more than just the men. It's just that at the time in the culture you referred to a crowd of people as the men because they were the 
they were the people who had, you know, power or voting, whatever. Like, they... Culturally, they were the ones who were counted as the number of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So an example is like when you're talking about James 1, 2, it says, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, etc. So are only men supposed to consider troubles as joy? No, of course, that's a reference to all Christians. So that's why it was changed to brothers and sisters. And like, again, I don't think... I think as long as you understand that, I don't think it really is a big deal. So now we're going to talk about one that does kind of an example that um, does actually make a bit of a difference depending on how you see it. Um, we're looking at First Timothy 3, 2. So this is an ambiguity in the original language. So we know what the original language says but we are not totally sure what they mean exactly and how to translate it. So we're talking about requirements for elders or overseers. And um, literally, like if you're going to translate it word for word, it's a one woman man is a requirement for an overseer and elder. So he's supposed to be above reproach, a one woman man, literally. Like temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospital, etc. So these are the requirements for an elder or, you know, an overseer. So sometimes, um, like this goes in the job description or the application or the requirements when you're selecting someone in your church. So what does one woman man mean? That's what the translators have to figure out. So some people say that it's the husband of one wife. Um, many translations say that some say that he must be faithful to his wife, that that's what that means. And then the NRSV is an example where it says you married only once. So you can kind of see how there's some ambiguity there in the original language. So does that mean it's okay if he was married before, as long as he's a one woman man right now? Um, is it okay if he were married once, but then that wife died and he remarried he's still technically you know right or does it mean that he's actually supposed to be a faithful husband right like um this ambiguity like his eyes and his heart are for one woman Mm -hmm. um and that's something that we are not like a hundred percent sure of because of the ambiguity in the original language so you can see how that would actually have an impact on how people select men for their church so, but that's not a, like a translation issue. That's that's an ambiguity from the original language. Um, and then another example is like tradition versus a change in translation. So sometimes things have been the way they've been for so long that translators are slow to try to change them. Or I guess wary of changing something because it's been there for so long. Like you'll see, this is an example, it's like, um, sometimes you'll see like an asterisk or a footnote and I'll say most manuscripts don't include this, mm. right? There might be like an extra verse or something like that. Um, but they'll leave it in even though most manuscripts don't include it because it's been there for so long. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. An example, this is a very small example. Um, but just to show you where it kind of happens is Romans chapter 16, verse seven. It's at the end and, um, 
Paul is like just giving his ending like greetings to everybody. And he greets Andronicus and Junia or Junius at the end. One has an S and one has an A. And it depends on the translation if there's an A and an S. And you might think that doesn't matter at all. I mean, it it probably matters more than you think if you like really dig into it. I wrote like a a whole like paper on this, but even though this, this one person's name and the one letter. But the idea is, was that person a man or a woman? Because a name ending in an S would be a male name, but there is no record of a male name, Junius. So most everybody believes that it's Junia and that it was a woman. Um, and so uh, then... So if it were Junius, it would be the sole single man ever by that name by any record that we, have. we could find yeah. yeah we've never found a record of it yeah um most people think it was like it's it's really not even argued among scholars as far as i've known or like when i was doing my paper people think it was junia and it was a female and then kind of like the issue then is people like paul calls them outstanding among the apostles and so then it's like, oh, well, is there a woman apostle? And then it kind of gets into that sort of thing. Yeah. And then that's a whole other argument. Right. That's just kind of secondary as a result of this. Yeah. And so my point in showing you this one is that even though most people think it's actually Junia, you might find the S on the end just because some translators are just keeping things the same, if that makes sense. Because it's they've that particular translation has always had it that way and they don't change mm-hmm. it. Gotcha. Yes. And I mean, there, there's validity to, to that. And there's validity in changing it when you feel like you have a better understanding. Um, okay. So I think what's really helpful is to kind of understand what you can do practically as you're studying the Bible. So I would try to make sure you know why you use a specific translation and read the translator's philosophy. Usually in the front of your Bible, the translator will actually say who they were, what they did, like their point in translating. Some will say like our attempt was to, I don't know. I have like stay. <laughs> I don't as, have one in front of me, oh, but it'll say like we were attempting to, you know, do pair like um do more of like a word for word translation or this and you can understand what they were trying to do and i think that's really useful to know what what you're reading like which translation and why they did it that way does yours have one yeah yeah it does i'm looking at it to try to pull out um so i have a uh a new living translation by tyndale And it says, this general purpose translation is accurate and excellent for study while also being easy to read. The NLT is helping many discover and rediscover the power of God's living word. The goal of any translation of the scriptures is to convey the meaning of the ancient Hebrew and Greek text as accurately as possible to the contemporary reader. The challenge for our translators was to create a text that would make the same impact in the lives of modern readers that the original text did in the lives of readers in its ancient ancient context. Uh, this has been accomplished by translating entire thoughts rather than just words into natural everyday English. The end result is translation is easy to read and understand. Yeah. So I think it's useful to know what you're reading. So check that out in the front of your Bible. 
Then I would also suggest looking at the footnotes in your Bible. Um, They're there for a reason, so read them and understand them. They're frequently fascinating. (laughs) Um, And then it can be helpful to look at other translations. I would say maybe don't just only ever read one, Um, especially if your church uses a specific translation during the service. Maybe read a different one at home. Um, so there's like this spectrum of Bible translations that go from like as close to word for word as possible. And then all the way to so far thought for thought that we get to like the paraphrase, which is the message, which isn't really like a translation because it's a paraphrase. But anyway, so you have this continuum, right? With Mm -hmm. the translations that you've heard of, uh, along the continuum. So I think it's helpful to spend some time in translations that are slightly different from each other. So like the NASB is a popular one, the new American standard. That's a lot closer to word for word. So if you're always reading the NASB, maybe once in a while, like read a new living translation, read the NLT, like that you just read from where they're saying they're trying to make the wordings clear and like impactful. So they're doing a little bit more of phrase by phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of an example of that. So Yeah. Be aware of it. I think that's helpful. Yeah, don't don't. I would I would not recommend like camping on one translation and like making it something that you feel like you have to defend or like you can only ever read from that that translation. Yeah, and sometimes it's helpful to just read different things. And of course, now we have such access; it's pretty amazing. Like you can go online. People have apps that have all these different translations and. Yeah, like you can you can tap on like a verse on a website Mm -hmm. and then see all the different translations like on the second half of the page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're stuck on something, you don't understand like why a word or phrase or why something's translated some way. um, Check out an exegetical commentary. An exegetical commentary goes is more than just kind of someone's thoughts on the idea, but it goes through the original languages and kind of explains why like what it what it said and why it's like what the meaning is. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's really helpful if you're digging really deep into something in scripture. Um, uh, yeah. Use parallel verses. Um, check out commentaries. Check out translators notes. Um, I really like, like I have a special affinity for like the net Bible because it's from a lot of DTS professors and translators and through some DTS people. So if you go to um, like netbible.org, it's the new English translation and they have so much, so many resources on there. Net.bible.org? No. It's just netbible? Yeah. Oh. I think it might even just be bible.org too, but netbible.org is what I have pulled up. Um, you can read it in that translation, a bunch of other translations all together. You can click on um, notes. There's tons and tons and tons of translators notes. You can click on Greek and Hebrew and it shows you the original languages. And if you like highlight over a word, it'll explain what it says and all kinds of stuff. I'm sure there's a lot of other resources I don't even know about now. Um, but there, like we have so much, um, we should encourage you to kind of like dig in and yeah. Yeah. As much or as little as you want. It's, it's really, Really interesting, uh, particularly the Net Bible. I enjoy the, uh, using the Net Bible to do Bible studies because it does provide you with 
uh, like the footnotes are very extensive and they give you a lot of reference for uh, this was the word it you know other translations say this and this and these are the reasons why but mm-hmm. um, yeah so I think in summary like let's be thankful that we have so many English translations and don't let it deter you from reading scripture but to dig in even more to like see what God has to say to us I mean God's been faithful to um, to maintain his word from the beginning. We've kind of seen that from the original when he originally inspired the original authors to write it all the way through the creation of the canon. And then as it's been translated into modern languages, like this is a supernatural thing that God's done and the Holy Spirit still speaks through it. God's word's still inspired and like what a blessing. So yeah, that's a summary. It's a good word. Anything else we need to cover? No, I don't think so. All right, why don't you give everyone a benediction and we'll head out. All right. (laughs) Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Thanks for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners and are praying for you. If you'll take two minutes to rate and review our podcast, we would be so grateful. For more information on today's episode, head to theologymeetsreality.com. Until next time, follow Christ, not culture.